Here we alternate sometimes uh, between Old Testament and New Testament books so that we can get a good picture of, of where Christ is in all of the Bible. I say all that as a preface so that you don't think I'm cherry picking because these verses are highly applicable to us today and for the last year they've been. That, that this passage was picked over a year ago. That this is not some figment of my imagination that I come in and I, and I say, you know what, we have an issue to address and we're going to preach it. No, we let God's word do that. It's timely and applicable. So first, before we go into the passage, let's look at what's happening in Acts chapter 15, we see the Jerusalem council agreeing that they would request, request, request Gentile believers abstain from eating food that was offered to idols. Remember that in the early church, there were Jews and Gentiles that had come together to worship together. They were both called to God. They both answered that call. They, they, they all came together in the assembly to worship the Lord. We see this in Galatians. The, the entire book is written about ethnic tension between Jews and Gentile believers. Not only was there ethnic tension and division, there was severe differences in their lifestyles. For the Jews who had become followers of Christ, eating meat that had been offered to idols was something they just couldn't do. It went against their conscience. Now Paul's writing to a church in Corinth. And in the ancient city of Corinth, there, there were markets, and the, the market, the major market, would be surrounded by pagan uh, temples that would sacrifice meat and food to their idols constantly. It's important to know because in Corinth, there weren't that many Christians. They were vastly outnumbered. The city was dominated by pagan religion and it was impossible to avoid it. And in the main temple in Corinth um, that was in the center of the city, if you can picture this, there, there were walls surrounding the temple. And on all sides of those walls, there were large markets. And what would happen is the priest would offer these, these, this meat to idols, and he would take what he could, he would eat what he could, and then he would sell the rest. And so when there were festivals and, and different things going on, you, the price of meat would drop, and so the poor people could get buy meat. And so you can imagine the situation for the average person who didn't have much wealth, that this was the only time that they could get meat, and the only opportunity for them to get meat was taking it from the temple where the meat was sacrificed to idols. And you think, well, wait, what does this matter? Those idols were carved. Those idols were picked up and placed on a shelf. Those idols cannot do anything because they don't even exist. They're just things. They're inanimate objects with no power, no authority. And so we would sit here and say, well, no big deal. I don't care. Offer them up to idols all you want. Just give me a good price on this slab of beef, right? But it mattered to the Jew. It mattered to the Christians who were saved and brought in from Judaism. The ruling of the Jerusalem council was that Gentile believers should abstain from eating these meats because it caused disunity and harmed their Jewish brothers and sisters. Paul could have said in this passage, you know what, I agree with the Jerusalem council, no more meat offered to idols, it's not allowed. 
But that's not what he said. Look at verses 1 through 3. He says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. What Paul is saying is that all believers have knowledge, but the weak don't see the full implications of this knowledge. And we see weak is not a derogatory term so much as saying that it's someone who is, is not uh, experienced in the Christian life. We would say this is of a new believer. Someone who is maybe still dealing with clinging to their old life. Weak being someone who is not able to deal with the difficulties that a more mature believer can deal with. Based on this... You can see how easy it would be for the Gentiles to say, well, we have knowledge. You guys don't. So you just need to do what we're doing. The Corinthian Gentiles could say that they know that idols have no power. They're made out of wood and stone. Who cares whether that meat was sacrificed to an idol? I, I don't care. I don't think any of us here in this room, when we went to a restaurant, care anything more than how it was prepared and what the chef put in it, into our plate. I'll be honest, I don't care if the chef cooked my steak and offered it up to the flying spaghetti monster. It matters nothing to me. Because the flying spaghetti monster doesn't exist. It wouldn't matter to me. But there were some in the Corinthian church who it did matter to. And there were others, the Gentiles, who were being prideful in their knowledge. But Paul says that they have not even applied their knowledge correctly, which means that they aren't nearly as spiritually mature as they thought they were. Let's go back to Corinth 2,000 years ago. The Jewish believers in the church were severely bothered by the fact that the Gentiles were eating this food offered to idols. They're saying that these Gentiles are ignoring the Jerusalem council and making life for them miserable. So what do the Gentiles need to hear most? I hope that no one said, you know what matters most? Your freedom. Your rights. It's your right as an individual to eat whatever you want. You know some said that. No, but they needed to hear that love is the mark of a mature Christian follower of Christ. That is what marks us off from the rest of the world. Love for one another and love for each other outside of our church. That's the mark of a healthy Christian. For the last year, this country has been in a battle. And by God's grace, we've largely avoided this here at FBA. But this country has been in a battle over masks and social distancing. We're told by the CDC and other infectious disease experts that wearing masks and staying socially distanced help to save lives, to, to, to curb the spread of a disease that has killed 600,000 Americans and nearly 3.5 million people worldwide. Now where you stand on the science behind this is your right to believe and I'll just be honest, from my perspective, I believe an expert far more than I believe myself. I haven't studied this. I haven't spent years doing this. But that is not even the root of the issue here. The root of the issue is not science. That has no role in this. Where you stand on the science is your right. 
But where's the love for one another? There's a parallel to what's happening in the U.S. now and what happened in Corinth 2,000 years ago. Some were saying, well, look, we can eat food. It doesn't matter what the Jerusalem council has said. We have the right to eat whatever we want. So we're going to eat whatever we want. And the Gentiles had every legal right to do just that. They weren't under dietary restrictions. Paul did say in 1 Corinthians, though, that everything is permissible. But do you remember what he said after that? Not everything was beneficial. Yes, you're free to eat those things, but is it worth it to do so? Chapter 8, verse 3, Paul says that love is the key thing that must be at the center of whatever we do. Is it loving to flaunt your freedom to one whose conscience in good faith is bound by something? Should someone who doesn't feel the need to follow the guidelines given from experts flaunt their freedom to those who are scared, worried, and anxious? Is that the loving response? Paul doesn't deal with masks and social distancing, but his words are applicable to our situation today. And we'll see, if you don't like these words, if you don't like my application, I can promise you this, you won't like where I'm going with this. And you won't like what Paul has to say because Paul focuses on love for one another above and beyond love for our own self. But in these three verses, we've seen something that I think matters to all believers. In everything that we must do, we must be guided by love for one another. So everything that we've seen from Paul is based on our love for Christian brothers and sisters in the congregation. Well, for those of us who like to read books about doctrine, then Paul kind of gives a, a statement, um, a pretty theological statement here. And he says this. He says um, in verses 4 through 6, Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, whom, uh, through whom all things and through whom we exist. Idols can't do anything for anyone because they're created by human hands. Praying to them or, or offering food to them will accomplish nothing because they are nothing. And Paul reminds the church of something that was probably a creedal statement. He says this, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things, who are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Here Paul reaffirms what was taught throughout the Old Testament, that there is but one God. And he is the creator. But God is not just the father. Uh, uh, God is also the son. The father, the son, and the Holy Spirit make up what we call the trinity. Paul doesn't spend much time in this. He does say that the son is an agent of creation. But he doesn't examine the theology here. But the early church did this in the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the father almighty, maker of heaven and on earth. Of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. So there's love for one another based on a doctrinal statement. So they work together, they're not opposed to one another. 
So the way that we've been going through this passage can be summarized as this. Love must be the driving factor in all of our relationships with fellow brothers, but that does not negate the need for deep study and for truth. And I'd argue, as I think we see in this passage, that love and truth are not opposites. This is the tendency for some is to say, well, love means never, never opposing bad doctrine. Just letting people believe what they want to believe and never addressing it. And then say, no, truth is truth. And it takes into account nothing about someone's feelings or about the way people feel about things or their own interpretations. And I think both of these are wrong. Our doctrine must be guided by love. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Truth without love is noise. And then in verses 7 and 8, Paul tells us that we must respect different levels of maturity. He says this, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former associations with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will, not, uh, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Verse six has a confessional statement, but verses seven and eight tell us that not everyone had this knowledge. Now let's imagine this. We're part of this new church in Corinth, full of Jews and full of Gentiles. Each group has a different shared history, Each group has a different background. Each group has different customs. And suppose that Paul writes in this letter that he opposed the Jerusalem council and proclaims that everything is free for the Christian and no one should have any issues eating any food. What happens to the brothers or sisters that are struggling with this? People who in good faith have said, my convictional statement, I'm not applying this to everyone else, I'm not saying everyone else has to do this, but my conviction is that it's not good for me to eat this food. What happens to them? What happens to the the new Christian, the person who's new to the faith? You can't just shut off how you've lived for decades. You can't just ignore how you were raised or, or all of those religious traditions that you had. Yes, we're given a new mind, and yes, we're given a, a new way to live, but the truth is, is that it often takes a long time for us to make those changes, doesn't it? When we discuss making changes in any organization, and a church is an organization in that sense, I often say that it takes a long time to turn a ship even just a few degrees. If you're on, a, on an aircraft carrier and you've got you've to make a 45-degree turn, it takes a while to get to that point. Because the bigger the ship, the harder it is to turn. And so the same thing happens in, in, in a church and the same thing happens in someone's life, that the longer that you've lived, the harder it is for you to make those changes and adjustments. And in fact, what Paul's saying is you may never change your mind. Even today, we all have personal convictions that may not be shared by others, and that's okay. But here's where love comes in again. If our convictions have any negative effect, any negative impact on brothers or sisters in the church, we must be willing to say, I'll get rid of those things for the sake of someone else. That doesn't mean telling them how wrong they are. We are to love them by being willing to sacrifice our opinions for the growth of another. But celebrating our rights is the American way, isn't it? Individualism means that no one can tell me what to do with my life. I can think, I can speak, I can act, and I can do whatever I want so long as I don't physically harm someone or take anything away from them. 
Why do I say that these are American values? Because when we talk about our rights, how often do we take into account how it affects someone else? And I'm not speaking to you as an American. I'm speaking to you as a Christian. How often do we do or say or think things that negatively impact our brothers and sisters? I'll give you an example. You have the right to be rude. You have the right to say ugly things to people. You have the right to to, to swear at people. You have the right to be a flat-out jerk. You can be the biggest jerk in the world. You have every legal right to do that. It's legal, but it's not at all helpful. It's not beneficial. It doesn't build anybody up. This is the result, though, when we incorporate our political or patriotic beliefs into our religious beliefs. Let me say this, and please do not read into this that's not there. When we drape the American flag over our faith, we're causing all sorts of problems because they do not often interact well. Our individualism causes us to forget the cause of Christ. It causes us to forget our brothers and sisters who need us to love them and to serve them and to guide them. You may have the legal right to do something, but it doesn't mean that it's good or helpful or the right thing to do. Paul says in Philippians 2, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility do what? Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. 1 John 4, 7, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Love is at the center of the Christian life. The seemingly endless battle to protect our rights has come at a cost. What does this have to do with masks? What does this have to do with social distancing? What does this have to do with anything? Let's read verses 9 through 13. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who who has knowledge eating in a temple, idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And you're thinking, wait a minute, there's nothing about masks. You're right. But are we dealing with meat sacrificed to idols today? None of us care about that. Rightly applied, this passage can deal with all sorts of issues. Honestly, this is dealing with everything in the local church, isn't it? That, that if the local church is functioning well, if we're doing our job as believers well, we will be sacrificing our desires constantly so that we can benefit someone else. Verse 9 explicitly says that we must make sure that our freedoms or our rights don't become a stumbling block to someone else. In other words, take care that your freedom doesn't cause someone to be bothered by what you're doing in the local church. That you're not causing a weaker brother or sister to stumble and fall. Verse 10 and 11 even says this. They say that those who are new to the faith or weaker in their faith may see us eating this meat, doing anything really, ignore their conscience, and then eat along with us. And this is what discipleship is, right? Discipleship is a mature Christian taking someone who's less mature, walking with them, and honestly, it's kind of copying. 
is someone who is mature shows and guides and the younger Christian, the less mature Christian, watches this mature Christian and emulates them. They say, I want to be like him. This is what it does. And it says, take care because you could lead someone in a bad place. Verse 11 says that this could destroy a weaker brother or sister. I'm reminded of Romans 14, which says this. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So the question is this. And this is what we always have to ask ourselves, and I'm, I'm afraid that I don't do this well enough. What impact will this have on my brothers or sisters in Christ? What impact will this decision that I'm making, the, the choices that I'm making, what impact will it have on you? Even more, what impact will it have on new Christians, weaker brothers and sisters in Christ? On a side note, some of you may be thinking, well, I don't know anybody who's weaker. There are. Go find them. This is your call. Go find them. Find someone who knows less than you about the Bible and spend time with them. Help them to grow. Help them to mature. Guess what? You'll mature as well. Training them in the faith. Now back to the text. What does this again have to do with safety precautions? Where is this at? Look at verse 12. Thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. This isn't just a matter of making someone feel good about themselves or even doing something that will uh, make them feel comfortable. When we love our spiritual siblings, we are showing them uh, that we love them, but we also love Christ. When we sin against one another, we are sinning against them, but Scripture says we're also sinning against Christ. And maybe you've never considered this before, but this is a biblical way to view how to treat one another. You may remember this as a child, the letters JOY, that acronym that we all learned in Sunday school class. And you remember what it stands for? Jesus, others, yourself. And we were taught at a very young age that that's the order that's most important. That, that we pay attention to what Jesus says first, that we love him and serve him, and then we put others above ourselves. Sunday school, but it's good, it's true, it's helpful. I think even, even people who've been Christians for a long time could be well served by thinking through that. Like, what decision does this, uh, does this, how does this affect my relationship to Jesus, my relationship to others, but put myself at the bottom. This is why to proclaim that we have rights when it harms another Christian or causes them anxiety or fear is not only wrong, it's sinful. It elevates us above someone else. Jesus himself suffered more than we could ever imagine. Jesus was beaten and crucified and left to hang on a cross. Jesus was mocked and hated everywhere he went. He was tossed out of towns when he traveled. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. And he did it because he loved us. And we just want to fight about our rights. Listen to what Paul says in verse 13. Here he gives us the direction of what we need to do. He says this, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. This is a mature response. Forget masks, forget social distancing, forget any of this that even exists. Yes, that's relevant for the moment, but you can insert nearly anything into these verses. 
anything that we're dealing with in a local church, and it still applies. What is it that we do as believers that may be harmful for a brother or sister in Christ? What are some of those rights that we've claimed that may be harmful to someone else? When our rights impede someone's growth or when our rights prevent someone from maturing in the faith, we've sinned against them and we've sinned against God. How does Paul say that a mature Christian should behave when confronted with the choice of participating in an act that causes a weaker spiritual Christian trauma? He says that we must exercise the discretion to give up anything that we do that may harm someone. Our freedom as Christians is limited by its impact on weaker Christians observing our behavior. Now, in all honesty, I'm not sure how much of this message would make sense to people in the East. In, in most places around the world, in most places in Africa or Asia, uh, they think very differently about community and decisions than we do. We were, we, we were not raised to, to think community before individual. We were raised the exact opposite. Individualism for, individualism for us reigns supreme, and there is good to that, certainly. But what happens to us when someone's individual rights crashes into the well-being of others? I'm not talking from a legal perspective. I'm talking from a spiritual perspective. In society, that can have many applications, but I'm not concerned about what happens outside. I'm concerned about what happens in this local church. How do we deal with clashes of our rights versus someone else's maturing? Paul says it clearly. If I'm doing anything that hinders the growth of a weaker Christian, I'll quit doing that thing. In other words, we value others more than we value ourselves. Let me be the first to say this stands in stark contrast against what our culture values. Even in churches. Think about this. How many church fights have you seen? Here or anywhere else? Probably a few. Probably seen some church splits maybe. Maybe you've been a part of a church split. Now let me ask you this. How many of those fights or how many of those splits happened over issues of first importance on a theological spectrum? Were any of those fights people who were arguing about the essence of the Trinity? No. Were any of those fights uh, 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 arguing about whether Jesus was God or man? Do you know what those fights, and fights, those fights and splits were about? They were about preferences. I don't like this. I don't like this. We can't agree. And I'm going to dig my heels in even deeper, and I'm going to dig my heels in even deeper, and now you've got a church that's split in half. Paul says that this should never be a part of the local church. It destroys the gospel witness to those outside of the faith. Now, if that's you, if you're not a believer in Christ, if you've never trusted in Christ and repented in him and given your life to him, please know that we are sinners who have a deep tendency to do the wrong thing. We've hurt others. We say and do things that hurt others. We often elevate our preferences over the needs that someone else has. We're guilty of neglecting to love well. The mark of a healthy church and a healthy Christian is love. Love for each other, love for the stranger, love for the outcast, love for the downtrodden, love for the one who doesn't know Christ. And frankly, we failed miserably. We've forgotten our duty to love others and instead focused on our rights or our preferences. We've burned bridges, many bridges. 
And we fail to see that the needs of others matter more than our preferences. Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love isn't accepting bad theology or ignoring sinful behavior, not at all. But love is patient and kind. Love does, does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love does not insist on its own way. Why not? Because killing our preferences to bless another is so much more loving than fighting for our preferences. Defending what we think is best, what we think is right, when what Paul says is others are being killed spiritually because of those things. Let this not be so of our church. Let this not be so of our individual selves. Would you pray with me?